This week on the Backtable Podcast. Now it's technology, technology, technology. For me, is we are becoming like technicians. At least for me, medicine is art. And then the science is done by the engineers. We are an artist with the help of technology. But we need technology. You cannot do good surgery if you don't have technology. Even though you are the best, if you don't have technology, you won't go anywhere. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast, where we bring you the best and brightest from our field with the hopes that you can take something from our show to your practice. My name is Gopi Shaw. I'm a pediatric ENT, and I'll be your host for the show today. We have a very, very special guest today. We have Dr. Cristobal Langdon. Dr. Cristobal Langdon is a passionate rhinology and skull-based eternal student. He specializes in rhinology and skull-based surgery and rhinoplasty. Now he divides his time as a consultant at the Pediatric Referral Center Hospital at St. Joan de Dao and his private practice in Barcelona, Spain. He is here to talk to us today about technology and 3D imaging and skull-based surgery. Welcome to the show, Cristobal. Thank you very much, Gopi. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm very excited. For our listeners, I got to meet Cristobal through LinkedIn. It was a LinkedIn case that you'd posted. It was a cool use of 3D surgery for a skull base. Uh, maybe, was it a Cordoma, Cristobal? Yes. And it was pretty cool. And so I thought it was a great way to reach out and LinkedIn linked us. So um, I'm excited to talk to you today. Cristobal, tell us first about yourself and your practice. Okay. Well, actually, I work here in Barcelona, but I'm from Chile. I came to Spain to do my residency. I trained in the hospital clinic and there I stayed there for eight years uh, as a rhinologist and a skull-based surgeon. And there's where I found this passion team and I think it gets stick to me. So I really started to working with them and then realizing that there is a lot of work to do and it's really nice surgery and I started working there then went up and did the, the pediatric cases. And that's when the relationship with the pediatrics started. I really, really loved the, the work there. And then they offered me to uh, a place there. The idea was to be half and a half, but that wasn't possible. So yeah, I decided to go there, give it a chance. And the main reason was because I think that the children's need the best of the best because you're helping a, a future citizen and maybe a future Einstein or whatever. So I think they deserve it. So nowadays I'm doing mainly rhinology. Actually in the San Juan I'm doing only rhinology and skull base in pediatrics. And then I started up my private practice where I do mainly rhinoplasties. My uh, focus uh, for the last several years was also pediatric sinus and skull base. And I love kids. I uh, absolutely love kids. I love the families. I love the multidisciplinary approach in the pediatric world. Do you have a uh, neurosurgical ophthalmology colleagues? Who, who are the specialists that you work with? I work side by side with uh, an ophthalmologist that it's actually a, a Chilean colleague. So we are two Chilean in the team. And then uh, the Dr. Jose Nojosa is an amazing neurosurgeon. He's the head of the department there. And, and we are really bonding together and creating a really, really nice team to work. For us, and at least for me, the neuroradiologists and nowadays the engineers, uh, they are part of the team and they are really, 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 really important part of the team. I, I really work side to side with them and 
in every case. Absolutely. My partners in Dallas, my neurosurgeon, he was the best, Dr. Dale Swift, a couple of years older than me, an experience that had the breadth and depth working next to him in the OR. I learned so much. I didn't realize the amount of decision-making on the fly that I would learn watching him operate. And then my ophthalmology colleague on the children's side, Dr. Kamela Tani in Dallas, was amazing. And neuroradiology, Dr. Tim Booth, you can't live without a great neuroradiologist. Tell me about the engineer. What is the role of the engineer? What do they do? Yeah, actually, in San Juan de Deo, when, when I arrived, I've, I've been there for a year. San Juan de Deo has uh, like, a, it's part of the hospital, but it's like foundation inside of the hospital. Uh, and they have this group of engineering, uh, mathematical, physics. Uh, they, they, they create this group in order to, to create and to facilitate our living as, as a doctor. And they are really, really good. Actually, we are the first hospital in Spain that has all the accreditation to do 3D printing, 3D molds. They were the ones that not create like the, the rules or the law, but we are the first to have this accreditation. Uh, they are really a nice group and they really love what they do. And they are really always, every day they are pushing us and say, hey, we, ha we have this technology, we can prove this technology. And I'm uh, a technology freak, so I'm always like, look what these guys <laughs> are doing. So we have to do it. Absolutely. Before we get into some of the technology, what are the common pediatric skull-based pathologies that you see? And how do they usually present to you? Mainly hypothesis and... I don't know, it's rough death cleft, some meningiomas, cordomas, gliomas. We do a lot of biopsies because, you know, in child, the chemo and all these brain theory work really, really nice. So we do a lot of biopsies. And usually, at least, all the cases are referred from other hospital, going to the neuro or going directly to us or to the ophthalmologist. But to be honest, usually it's via neurosurgery or via ophthalmologist. Because we are now we are trying to get known that we are doing this kind of thing and we have the possibility and all the armamentarian to do this thing. So to that they send cases to me is really rare. We are working on that. Most of the cases for us also came through uh, our neurosurgery because endocrinology, right? If it had an initial presentation, would send to neurosurgery. They would sometimes have their tumor boards. And then if it was going to be a you know, transnasal endoscopic approach, then that's when I would get involved as well. In the hospital, we have this tumor board, this neuro tumor board and body tumor board. I mean both. So sometimes they start talking uh, some cases and, and I have to... Uh, raise my hand and say, hey, maybe we can do this. Is nowadays we don't open all the face, we don't destroy the, these kids' faces. We go through the holes, and it's really safe and it's with pretty good results. Actually, the oncologists and the radiotherapists say, ah, it's really you can do that. Yes, yes, we can do so. That's another route that we can have some patients, but we have to to fight a little bit in the good way. Yeah, in the good way. Tell me first, before we get into that, tell me the age range that you, you, that you normally see. From newborn till 21. Actually, the eldest patients, like over 18, they are really special cases. We have been treating them since when they were kids and we just follow up. But to be honest, if we receive like a new case of 21, it would be a little bit tricky to treat it at the hospital. We have to send them to the adult. 
unless it's a really rare disease and a really rare scenario. Yeah. And what's your initial clinic visit? Do you see them all in clinic before surgery? Or do you meet some of the patients in the hospital or the day of surgery? I visit the, the patient every Wednesday in my clinic. And usually these kind of patients, I'm only visit the patient that they are more tricky or I see some anomalies in the MRI or CT scan. If not, because of political of the hospital, they don't want us to make a lot of visit of, to the kids. So uh, we try to reduce as much as possible the visit. If I really need to visit a patient in this complex skull-based procedure, for example, I, I've always visit the patient. I do an anamnesis, and uh, I always scope every patient with a flexible because <laughs> rigid is it's more tricky. Unless I see something interesting on the nose or on the mouth or whatever, I've changed to a rigid and, and recorded. I, I try to record every scope and I have a library. It's just training deformity that I have that we used to, to record everything. But I think it's helped. Now it's helped when you have to give talks and when you have to explain. And, and even when you are planning the surgery, it helps a lot. Yeah. So I would say I would probably see a lot of our patients um, in our outpatient clinic at least one time before surgery. That being said, there were definitely a handful of patients that were either admitted through the emergency room because of visual deficits or families that traveled. You know, they they lived very far that were comfortable meeting me the day of surgery. Those patients I would potentially see morning of or, you know, if they were already admitted a day or two before. I usually, if I'm going to scope a kid, I also use flexible because it's hard enough to sometimes even get close to the child's nose. So rigid, you know, if they move just like a millimeter or two, it's going to cause a nosebleed or, you know, hurt them or something. So I usually do flex and I will look at the imaging first. If I don't, you know, I used to scope everybody and then I, it depended on the child and the, if I was going to be able to get that look in. Some would just get so, you couldn't get near them. And so Probably 80% of the time I did, but there was probably a good number that didn't always, which always kind of made me nervous because I wanted to see the mucosa, right? Like I want to make sure I wasn't missing anything that the MRI or CT didn't show, but majority of them would get it. So, okay, you've seen the patient, you're planning for surgery. Tell me about preparation for surgery and some of the technology that you use. Okay, yeah. Regarding preparation, yeah, we usually scan and do MRI on every kit. If we are going with navigation, we, we can talk about that. We do a CT scan. This patient, at least since I'm in the hospital, usually they have CT and MRI, both. Not that I ask them, but the oncologist or the nodal or in the emergency room, they ask it already. So usually we have both. That's really good. If not, it depends. Huh? But if it's uh, intra... Uh, Tical tumor, I prefer MRI and it's a tumor on both sides or yeah, I maybe I prefer CT scan. But at least up to date I I haven't had the opportunity to decide which I have to ask. So I, I have both and then we can talk more in extent, but we when we are doing this kind of reconstruction and models and thing, we, we need to do some special uh, ancho CT scan or ancho MRI and uh, another special imaging technique. But usually it's CT MRI. Then as for the pre-op treatment, actually I, I don't give any unless the kid need it. 
for their other pathologies, but if not, I don't give antivirus, I don't give corticoids, uh, oxymetazoline, whatever. Uh, it's just naive nose going to the OR. So we usually had both as well, and you're right, most of the kids would have a CT and MRI, which is great. The you know, MRI obviously is great for soft tissue, tumor differential. Uh, the CT I liked a lot, especially, like you said, when it's bilateral, when you're worried about carotids, you know, after carotid recess, and it's more of the bony anatomy. Um, and also uh, looking at the sphenoid and how well pneumatized, right? On the MRI, you can't, you know, it's, it's, you don't always appreciate that because you can't really tell bone, but that CT, that cue ball sphenoid, you know, not under pneumatized, is going to be tricky. And so if you can see that ahead of time, at least you're uh, somewhat, you know, you're prepared to kind of have that struggle a little bit. Yeah. And, and regarding the time of surgery, because of course, if you have a con concal sphenoid, you will have, you will need more time to, to go to the places. Absolutely. So. It's like... Touch drill, right? Like it's, it's there, you don't have the landmarks. Exactly. It's like a cue ball mastoid. That's what I would tell the residents because you have no air cells, right? You don't have anything to follow. And so the distance and the depth and even uh, fitting the scopes and working with uh, forehands can be difficult. We used navigation pretty much for anything that was truly skull based with neurosurgery. In terms of the recon, you said, okay, they come to you. And then if we need more imaging, it would be a CT angio or an angio MRI. How do you? decide which cases you were going to do a recon on or, you know, go further with preparation with some of the 3D models? The easy answer would be that when we are not sure if going from front, it's the best way. So we really like to do uh, reconstruction and then see the case in all 3D dimension and, and try to, with the neuro and ophthalmology, try to see if what, which is the better way, the better approach. That's the easy. Then, to be honest, when there is a complex case like the Cordoma that you saw on, in LinkedIn, this is because I wanted to to do the surgery on the model before I go with the kit because it was a the, the patient had a ray therapy and we are going to do a big Cordoma, a lot of ray therapy there. So we wanted to see if we can reach, and we have we had to go behind the odontoid, and we didn't want to destabilize the cervical atlantoid uh, joint, and we didn't have to do a spine fixation. So we talked with the neurosurgeon, okay, let's try, let's print it, let's try it if the scope of, of our scope and the different angles allow us to remove safely this kind of tumor. So there are both, both two reasons. Um, now we have a pending case, this uh, meningocele of the Meckel's cave, but it's really posterior. So we're deciding which is the best approach if we go from in front, from lateral, from the ear, because it, it has uh, facial palsy. So so we are going to print this case and, and do the surgery and try to, to de and decide which is the best way. That's amazing. So the models are big enough to where you can simulate instrumentation yeah, no, no, it's one to one. It's one to one, and that's that's the amazing thing because when they printed this model, I realized, whoa, this is really tiny. <laughs> it's it would be difficult. It's really tiny, and the and the nostrils and nasal fossa, it's, it's it's small. So yeah, in that case, then we did another case. Uh, I I went to Leuven to do a similar case. Regretfully, it was far more advanced tumor, far more difficult one, and we we couldn't. 
achieve cross total resection and we print it and yeah but the model really gives you idea of what you're going to do if not if you see on the mri you see the mri on this big screen you say oh that's easy yeah you go there ping pong ping pong but then you have the model i i, I told the engineer said this is correct this is the size are you sure yes 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 so well okay i have to think this twice before i go yep I think that's an important part of, of this kind of technology. So what percentage of your cases then do you usually have a model for those reasons? Actually, the printer that allows us to do this is brand new. I think that the, the first model was the one that we published in LinkedIn. Now we are preparing a, a paper. But because of the technology of this printing that they allow us to print in different textures. So it's a really, really nice and brand new technology printer. That's amazing. And from an ENT standpoint, um, what kinds of uh, teaching or information do your engineers need to know from your perspective? Like, or there tweaks or, I know you talked about size and making the size a little bit more one-to-one. What else did you have to kind of help convey? To be honest, the, the ones who work more is the neuroradiologist, Dr. Gomez Chiari. They, they have to do the segmentation. So that's really, really the, the work is doing the segmentation and, and, and doing the fusion between the CT scan and MRI. So from my side, I, I go with them and say, okay, we need to localize, for example, on that case, huh? hypoglossal canal, hypo, hypoglossal nerve, six nerve. We have to really try to see it. Both carotid in that case was both jugular bulbs and yeah, and the pedian. So then they have to segment all this information in order for the engineers to print them. They give them STL, it's like a format of the archive, and they then post-process it on, the, on a special software. They do first a 3, 3D reconstruction, then we check the 3D reconstruction is okay, and then they print it. I was going to say, when you're looking at it or doing the simulation to see if your instruments fit, do you do that in the lab? Do you go to the OR in like a special room? How do you actually test it? Yeah, and I've been working to have a really nice lab, but this is one of my goals from this 22, 23 year. Because, yeah, I'm only one year in the hospital, so I just arrived and we are working on that. But yeah, yeah, that's, that's the goal. And actually, this is really new information i've tried it on friday but we are preparing like going to metaverse and doing like surgery there yeah i was going to ask you um i think that's i think that's the next step right no it's it's the present it's not future it's the present yeah well, i i did it on friday they they know i'm so passionate so they call me hey christopher please come here we have to show you something what what no 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 please come so I write there, they yeah, put these goggles on and I have the, the same case that I did. And yeah, you can do everything. It's, it's amazing. It's an amazing technology. You can share, you can teach, you can prepare everything. Yeah, and, and you can and you will be able to do a surgery and maybe okay, let's talk to Gobi and Gobi, please connect. <laughs> and then, oh if you have four, five, six, or twenty eyes looking at you and, and giving you some instruction, the better. Absolutely. To me, that's also the future of surgical education, surgical training, continuing surgical tra advancement. So I, I agree. It's right here. It's right now. What else? Anything else that I'm missing from the preparation side before we go to intra-op side? Uh, olfactometry to all patients. 
we use the use sniffing sticks, the, the children's sniffing stick that is validated for Spain. Uh, we try to, to do a questionnaire, quality of life questionnaire to all patients. Yeah, which one do you use for your pediatric school-based patients? Now I'm using uh, the SN5. Over 12 years, I'm using SNOT22. And then I really like the visual analog scales regarding nasal abstraction, binary. Kids get the visual analog very well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So in the OR, you said you will use image guidance. In complex cases, I do. To be honest, we always train and uh, I train without. Notice because we don't believe in it or because we are lazy. I think that's what would be the real reason. And for medical legal reasons, at least here in Spain, it's not that necessary. On contrary, on the state, that is, I think it's no way you go inside without navigation. And the other issue is, for example, what I do when I do some cases on my OR or mine, it's like ENT OR. We don't have uh, navigation. We have a really good, but it's from the neurosurgeons. So when we do like complex cases, we do the neurosurgical navigation. If not, uh, we don't use it. I would like to have one. To be honest, it doesn't matter to me. Now we are, we will publish in the course, but we are uh, starting the first pediatric ENT fellowship. So we are going to announce it in, in the course. So just for that reason, I think it would be important for us to have an application because it really shortens the learning curve of the fellow. On the other hand, this is just my opinion. I think notice navigation don't allow you to really understand the anatomy and your patient because you trust too much on that. And because I really have to study, I really have to have the CT scan in my brain. I do it in like five minutes, but it gets stuck in my brain. I am, I'm always know where I am, but I understand that's not ideal. We need to mix two. And sometimes I've missed neuronavigation. So it takes more time if you don't have if you have and you're you're completely sure, okay, you go go ahead. If not, you have to be more gentle with everything. I find it helpful. I agree though you can't rely on it. And I think the more and more that you do, and depending on the patient pathology, there's gonna be times where you don't really look at it, and then there's gonna be times where it's the under pneumatized phenoid sinus or my neurosurgical colleague trying to figure out how much tumor to take out or not. You know, so it, it definitely has its role, but you're right, it can't be the crutch. We can't just depend on that. And when you're teaching, it's very helpful to make sure we're all on the same page. <laughs> we got to be on the same page. Um, what would be amazing is that we can have an, a notification that update the tumor status. Oh, God, that would be amazing. Ah, maybe that's the future. Maybe in the metaverse, Cristobal, you're going to yeah. create that yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> So um, when you do have navigation, do you have instruments that are image-guided? You know, I think that can sometimes be controversial too. Some people like image-guided instruments. Some people don't use them. Some people use them just for teaching. Any thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I tried some of this neuro-navigated instrument back in, in hospital clinic where I did uh, mainly adults or only adults. Uh, they are nice, to be honest. I don't think they are better than normal instrument. Nowadays, we don't have navigation of instrument. We only have like the pointer and it works fine. 
And regarding navigation during surgery, at least for me, it's more important the echo Doppler than the, the navigation. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. We ours is pretty much just the pointer uh, when we need it. We don't tend to use navigate instruments, although I think the ability is there. Again, in those rare cases where it's super under pneumatized sinoid, which might be maybe once a year, that might be a time to use it. But technically, I don't tend to use those very much. In the OR, when you do have navigation, do you like the CT? Do you ever fuse the CT and MRI? Do you just do MRI? What do you What do you like? We would do the fusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Always. Yeah. And then really quickly for CSF leaks, do you ever consider using intrathecal fluorescein or any of the light or anything like that in those cases? Those aren't as common, but every once in a while they'll come in too. Yes, yes, sure. When we are going, for example, for a CSF leak and we have to find this leak, we put fluorescein. Always, always. But we don't use the blue light and it doesn't help. <laughs> you can see the fluorescein yeah. bright in there. It's, yeah. But what we, we don't do is to put fluorescein on every case, just on the cases where we are going to look up for the CSF. Yeah, for us as well. It definitely was a rare, I can only think of maybe in the last nine years, maybe two or three times that we've used intrathecal fluorescein. And those were rare cases where, you know, we just, on the imaging, you had a beta 2 positive sample, but the imaging just wasn't quite as obvious. You know what I mean? Maybe something like that. It's something where it's just like, I'm pretty sure there's something going on or, you know, every once in a while, there's some history, but those can be really tricky. We're not doing it on the encephalocele that you find or see or the, you know, obvious, but it's, it's every once in a while where it's just not quite matching up. And I agree, the special light thing, I, we never use any of that either. What else? What a, am I missing anything? Do you tend to probably were using four millimeter scopes ever using the 2.7 for any reason? Anything else I'm missing? I'm just trying to think of other special pediatric intra-op skull-based things. Actually, for the skull base, I've tried always to use the four millimeters. If not, we use the autologic, I think it's three millimeters for the endoscopic tympanoplast. I think it's not 2.5, it's three millimeters scope. The issue, at least what we have, it's that it's a little bit blurry on the outside. I don't know why. It's not as good as the normal one, the normal four millimeter. But yeah, actually, the last case we have to do, we did a, a glioma of the nasopharynx. Actually, I published, I think in, in LinkedIn, it's really nice case because we were able to see the middle ear through the mouth. Look it up. It's really amazing. It's really nice. Was it through the eustachian tube? <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because we follow the tumor through the eustachian tube, we remove it, and then, oh, what is that? What? Wow. And we were inside the middle ear. It's amazing. And there we, I, I used uh, the otologic scope. It was an eight days old girl. Wow. Uh, yeah, eight days. Eight days. Wow. Yeah, really newborn. Wow. At some point, I, you know, maybe this is a different podcast, but I'd love to get into repair techniques, you know, drain, no drain. There, there's so much, I feel like, in a pediatric that we don't necessarily have as much data or information as we do on the adult side. And age and obviously tumor type, all that stuff makes such a difference. But I guess just really quickly, um, nasal septal flaps, I assume you use those when you need to, when there's a high flow leak or when, when do you tend to use them? I use it uh, when we are trespassing a cistern because automatically it's a high flow CSF leak. The issue is that 
the nasoceptal flap in kids it's really really small so yeah i don't trust it too much so i do a really really multi-layer reconstruction and then put the flap but i trust more on the multi-layer than on the flap because it's really small flap in kids tell me about the multi-layer are you doing synthetic stuff fat do you ever do cartilage or bone pate or anything like that no uh i like fat we had like this lyophilicide uh, facial lata it's like uh from a the thigh the legs from another patient yeah exactly and in cases i really like dura dura form and then facial lata and when that fail i really like to extract facial lata from the patient or temporalis facial depends from autologous material but in kids i i try not to do it because of the morbidity but so for us you know if it was a large spatial defect intracranially and then we needed to fill some space we would get fat and then yeah fat fat is yeah, amazing yeah and i i agree i would never just relied on the nasal septal tended we used a lot of bio design and then every once in a while would get little bone chips or cartilage from the septum or the sphenoid rostrum um and actually my neurosurgeon Dr. Swift taught me that because at first I was like how is this going to you know it's it's rigid and you know but he would just kind of help tuck it in you know like a inlay like a plug like a gasket almost and then if there was a high flow leak or you know a pathology like a craniopharyngeum or something that were like mm, you know we're going to need that nasal septal flap then those kids got those as well if you were going to use a nasal septal flap did you usually harvest that at the beginning of the case or wait and see what you needed at the end Yes, exactly. Unless I already know that I will have to use it. For example, when when we are going to the sphenoid, whatever, I do like this rescue, the so-called rescue flat, but it's no more than push down the pedicle and then remove everything. Yeah. If I need it, I raise the the flap. If not, try to leave it as as it is. Yeah, I agree. If I it's a pathology that I know I'm, I'm going to use it on such as a craniopharyngeum and we're going to raise it or potentially somebody that's already been radiated um, and there's going to be extensive dissection, we're going to do it. But I learned my lesson to just wait. And then after you've done your layers, do you usually do any packing, dissolve packing, mirror cells, anything like that? Yes, I put like a tissue call, tissue, yeah, the glue, a little bit of that. And then I really like spongostan, but the one that is like a sponge. Oh, gel, like uh, gel foam or something like that? Like gel foam, yes, exactly. Not Surgicel. Surgicel give a lot of crust. I really like the foam and that's it. No, no nasal packing. Because in the kids, I try to do everything. So in order to not to touch it yeah. afterwards. <laughs> so, and then just see it a couple of weeks later in the in the in the outpatient clinic with the scope and see if they are doing the correct races and that's yeah. it. For me, it was to seal. Every once in a while, if I had like wanted to kind of tack up the edges, I would roll a little bit of surgisol because it's kind of sticky, right? And it does crust. So I'd kind of put it at the corners of the flap just to kind of help it stick almost. And I like gel foam, but I also would um, use, sometimes I would just, I got in the habit of then just kind of sticking into the sphenoid space larger uh, nasopores that could kind of help fill and hold um, that would dissolve as well. I used a mirror cell maybe once, twice. I, I don't like those in children, you know, the gloved mirror cell and attach it to the face. I think it was like a ethmoid roof. There was like a, a bullet, like she got 
shot with like a BB gun close and it somehow it lodged near the ethmoid roof and I wanted the flap to like, you know, hold. It was like a free mucosal graft. Yeah. And I think for her I did, but to be honest, who knows? I mean, I had some packing and then I put the Miracel in and under it. And so who knows how much it actually held up, but the kids are miserable and I don't make it a part of my routine. And I, then I was just like, I think nasopor or something a little bit bulky that dissolves on its own will help and do the job. And then what are your thoughts on post-op saline? So I guess two questions. One, uh, when do you start? And two, do you go straight to rinses? Do you start with mist? What's your regimen? I've loved nasal rinses and nasal touches. I think for me, it's the ultimate treatment. In cases where we had a, a CSF leak, I started with like this mist. We have here a, a mist that is with hyaluronic acid that I tried on myself and on my kids, and it's really, really nice. Last six months, I have, I've, I've been using that for the first week or two weeks. And then we do douches, like in kids, little kids, 100 millimeters each side and older, 200 millimeters every 12 hours. Yeah, twice a day. So I agree. I think that initially I was so hesitant because I'm like, oh, if they have a CSF leak, I'm going to, it's going to be hard to tell if it's clear rhinorrhea from the rinse or the, you know, like a leak. And so I used to be actually pretty hesitant to start anything for the first week. And this was probably a couple of years ago in my first couple of years out. And then um, <laughs> so I was like, okay, it like calm down, you know, and maybe if it was a high flow in the OR, we're happy with repair, plus minus a drain, whatnot. I would probably start within 24 to 48 hours with the mist as well. And I would have them do that a couple of times a day for about a week and then start rinses. Um, but what I found is I kind of wish I had started the rinses sooner because I started noticing more and more sneaky eye. Like the kids, they get little scar bands and um, it's not that big of a deal. Most of the time, they don't get nasal obstruction. They don't usually have symptoms from it. I don't go back to the OR and debride and do all that stuff because it's more anesthesia for the kids. It depends, but it just drives me crazy because when you see it, you're like, oh, there's that sneaky eye. But it's true. Huh? The kids do like this nasty <laughs> inflammatory reaction after the surgery. It's really, everything is really, really swollen and a lot of uh, fibrin and whatever. I, I haven't seen that in, in, in adults. And, and the kid is really annoying. So, oh, again. So that's why a lot of rinses, a lot of rinses. And the other thing is, yeah. To be honest, I start this mist, yeah, 48, because when you, you have these complex cases, they, they go to the ICU, they stay there for, I don't know, one, two, three days or whatever. So usually I don't touch it in the ICU. I go there, I only, please, this thing going out from the nose is mucus, it's not CSF leak. <laughs> don't worry, don't bother yeah, me, don't yeah. bother me. Just, okay, the kids. I know, I, I look at, they show me all the Kleenexes. <laughs> and I'm like, I think it's fine. Yeah, exactly. It's really annoying. Yeah, 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 exactly. No, yeah. no, it's, yeah. And then when they arrive to the room, I start the, the mist or whatever. Yeah. And, and then the other thing is I got in the habit of telling the families and showing them like on YouTube video about sinus rinses ahead of time. Because for any sinus kid, whether it's skull base or, you know, routine sinus surgery, because it's like you said, it, they don't do it. It can just cause so many more problems to where their sneaky eye then will become symptomatic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, true. And I'll tell the parents, okay, look, you will have to fight with your kids because I have to fight with, I have two kids, seven and eight. And, and I remember when they, they were like four, I have to do like these nasal rinses, but I had to fight with them. They had, so I put it like 
from the, the head with my wife, the <laughs> arms and then to the rings. But you have to do it. It's, it's, yeah. If not, yeah. it's, 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 it's tough for sure. And, and the first time, the second time, it's like a little bit traumatic. But then, then nowadays they do it themselves. Some of them like it. Some of them, their nose clears up and they're like, oh. But it, it yeah. And it's something they may want to actually try before surgery just to kind of get used to it as well. So it's not like a new learning thing after they've been through such a, a recovery. It's maybe makes it a little bit easier. And then do you debride ever in clinic? Do you ever have to go back to the OR? Yes. I try to. I try. <laughs> but, uh, Christopher, yeah. be honest. You know how it is. <laughs> No, no, yeah. Uh, it's hard. I, I don't don't put too much effort. I don't like, no, no, hold the kid and I will do it. No, no, no. If, if the kid wants to do it and he's fine, I do it. If not, and I see, to be honest, up to date, I haven't taken any kids to the yard to see the, to do to, to, like the Brideman. But this is because I'm, I'm really annoying with the rinses and, and whatever but yeah to do the brightman on the clinic on adults for me it's the key it's the key issue is i always do and i push harder and harder but in kids it's no way it's really difficult and i think it's it worse because it's just start creating more <laughs> more damage to the nose there's more inflammation yeah, it's, yeah it's, but fortunately again uh, even though they tend to scar very rarely i, I can't think of any knock on wood, where the scar band has caused nasal obstruction, thankfully, or some sort of sinusitis, you know, now we have a CRS issue because they can't drain or, you know, whatnot. Um, for me, you know, maybe in an adolescent, if I can, you know, just suction, even with a head, if I've done like a nasoceptal flap, sometimes there's crust on that side and it can smell. I've had to put a headlight on nasal speculum and just get the nasal cavity, you know, get the crust out so it doesn't stink. That happens. And then, but like true debridement into the sphenoid cavity. That's not very common for me. I think I can count on my hand the number of kids that have let me done that. And usually they're girls who are like teenage girls. You can kind of, you know, they're tough. Um, and usually if I'm actually in there doing stuff in the sphenoid, it's probably been at least six weeks out after surgery. I, I don't get too aggressive with that stuff, at least in the sphenoid cavity. Um, and like you said, I don't I don't take anybody back for that because it's an, an extra anesthetic. And again, for my kids that have developed some scars or things like that, fortunately, knock on wood, they haven't had any too many issues and, it, and if and when if that happens then we'll deal with it and maybe that'll be a couple of years down the line if that happens we'll be older exactly you can deal with that later yeah yeah absolutely so okay as we uh, slowly start to wrap up any final pearls or pitfalls that you've learned with your experience in your pediatric school-based practice you really need to to win the kid you, you really need to be a friend of the kid. You have to achieve that they see you as a friend in order to, to do all these kind of things. And at least for me, I always try to explain it everything because they know, they know if you have kids, you, you see, they, they realize everything. They are really super intelligent and they are more afraid if you don't talk to them. Uh, the parents for sure won't unless they are really like, really, really super rational parents. It's a little bit of issue, but if you explain them in their words, why are you doing this and why is helpful for that? I think that is, that's a good way of approaching this, this kids. And then, I don't know, I think it now is technology, technology, technology. For me is we are becoming like technicians. At least for me, medicine is art. 
And then the science is done by the engineers. We are an artist with the help of technology. But we need technology. You cannot do good surgery if you don't have technology. Even though you are the best, if you don't have technology, you won't go anywhere. I think that we, we should embrace technology and, and use it more. What I have been realized is we have a lot of technology, but you don't see a lot of technology in medicine. You see GPS, you can recognize something from satellite, but you cannot do a, a, a nice navigation system. It's, it's no way. Nowadays, the TV are 8K, 4K. It was like 10 years ago. And now the, the issue is now if you have a, you have a 4K system, yeah, yeah, it's amazing. Well, okay. Yeah, but we are really, really behind the real technology in medicine. Yeah, and the, yeah, for sure, virtual reality and metaverse is the present for me. We should go there and train, train, train. Uh, now I, 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 we create a simulation model. It's a skill simulation model in order to improve your skills more than know the anatomy. Because the anatomy is on the books. You can, if you see a lot of CT scan or whatever, you, you will learn anatomy is on the YouTube or whatever. But if you don't have skills, you don't train your skills, uh, that doesn't help you anything. So yeah, uh, now we develop one and we are trying to, to put it on there for everybody to, to practice. I think it's practice, 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 make the master. So a simulation model using virtual reality in the metaverse is sort of next step. That's what, yeah, yeah, I don't know what, we create a 3D printing model in order to practice like this kind of movement. I had the opportunity to be teacher in a lot of uh, dissection courses. And you really see people destroy the cadaver. They open the ethmoid, they open the antrostomy, they do the sphena, they, they reach towards the whatever, the cerebellum. But you have to do it nicely, <laughs> gently. Uh, you know, you, you need to flow. Now that's the aim with these models, to, to really to practice these skills in order to reduce the, the, the damage you do inside these tiny spaces. I love it. You need to flow. I love that. Christopher, thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast. Um, I'm back to you at UT. I learned a ton. It was great to uh, geek out and talk about something I love as well. If any of our listeners want to reach out to you or get in touch with you, uh, where can they find you? Any social media or I guess LinkedIn? Uh, yes, they can find me on my email, Christopher Langdon Gmail. They can find me in LinkedIn. I think it's Christopher Langdon, Dr. Christopher Langdon. I don't know. And Instagram, Instagram, I think is drlangdon.orl. It's like otorino, laryngologist in, it's like ENT in Spanish. And in, yeah, in Twitter, but actually I, I don't see too much Twitter nowadays. They can email me. <laughs> and just a quick plug, I think Chris Well is helping to organize a pediatric endoscopic ENT course. Um, it's a three-day course in Barcelona. It's actually next week from the 18th through the 22nd. By the time that this podcast comes out, the course will be over. However, I wanted to plug it because it may be something that you may or may not continue to do. What do you think, Cristobal? Yeah, actually, uh, we will record the course, so it would be available 
I think it's from November. It will be available online on the hospital webpage. And we will try to, to do this course every every year. Awesome. I'm excited because one day is just endoscopic airway. Second day is endoscopic sinus skull base, which I'm super excited about. And I think the third day is endoscopic ear. And I think I saw Dr. Daniel Marchioni as one of the guest speakers. So I can't wait. Um, all right. I think that's a wrap. Thank you. Thank you, Gopi. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team lead is Karen Yen with support from Caleb Hodson, Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.